This Ends at Prom is a critical analysis show and is being produced in solidarity with the WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. The podcast you're about to hear was produced during the strikes, and without the labor of the writers and actors currently on strike, the movie being reviewed here wouldn't exist. For more information, feel free to visit the Freelance Solidarity Project at freelancesolidarity.org. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. Welcome back, prom party. Hi. Oh, you're so excited. I'm, I've learned how to deal, so I'm feeling way better. <laughs> so something that's been really fun. Yes, we are talking about how to deal. This is a movie that is turning 20 this year. But we've been having a great time looking for information on how to deal. Because, Harmony, what happens when you Google how to deal? Uh, Google likes to autofill, as does YouTube. Uh, so it goes, how to deal with anxiety and depression and suicidal <laughs> thoughts and every other ill thing that can possibly be going on in your brain before we get the movie. Yeah, it's like the 12th thing on the list that happens when you look up how to deal. So I'm sorry, whoever was in marketing in 2003, you were not using search engine optimization before that was a thing and you should be ashamed. Yeah, though <laughs> I think my favorite was like how to deal with a destructive puppy. Oh, that's good. I I don't even have a puppy, but I would love to know how to deal with a destructive puppy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, we are talking about how to deal, and we are not alone this week. Joining us is the host of the Books in the Freezer podcast, one of my very favorite shows. And so now all of you who are always complaining that we cover movies that are adaptions of books, not talking enough about the book, we have a treat for you because Stephanie Ganya is with us this week. Hi, Stephanie. Oh my gosh, hi. <laughs> I'm hi. so I am so excited to be here. I'm so excited that you are here because I knew I wanted you on the show. And when you were like, do you want to talk about how to deal? I was like, you know what? I do want to talk about how to deal. <laughs> oh my gosh, had you seen it before? I had seen it before. Uh, Harmony did not, I believe. Oh, this was an experience. <laughs> this was a first time for you. Okay. So, Stephanie, why How to Deal of all the movies you could have talked about? <laughs> I have, I feel like I have a long history with this movie. Um, I was in a Borders in 2003, and I stumbled upon a mass market paperback with the movie tie-in cover for the movie How to Deal. And so I picked it up, and it was both books that this is based on by Sarah Dustin that summer and someone like you. And without watching the movie, I read both, became obsessed, read it through multiple times, went on to read everything Sarah Dustin had ever written. And then years later, 
finally watched How to Deal. And I had so many feelings. I think it changes every time I watch it Mm -hmm. uh, because I think now I'm a little more generous and like when things get adapted, things are going to be lost. It's just a different medium. But, Mm -hmm. you know, teenage me was like, how dare you? (laughs) (laughs) But I watch it now and it is so funny and it just feels like getting into a time machine and stepping into 2003. It really, really does. From the fashion to the music to what is considered drama, it is so 2003. Um, To Peter Gallagher's facial hair. Oh my God, Peter Gallagher's face. Peter Gallagher's like a horrible middle part, like cool dad going through a midlife crisis and wanting to be Dave Navarro. No, he he does not want to be Dave Navarro. He wants to be Patrick Monaghan from Train. Okay, that's a very good point. Uh, So, Harmony, what did you know about this movie, if anything, before we watched it? Not a damn thing. Oh, all right. (laughs) I looked it up as the uh, opening credits were rolling, and I'm like, oh, it's Mandy Moore, but it's Mandy Moore sandwiched between Saved and A Walk to Remember. This could go Mm -hmm. in a lot of directions. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. (laughs) So, Stephanie, if you had to explain the plot of this movie, like a quick little synopsis to someone who has never seen how to deal what is this movie about this is about uh high school senior holly played by mandy moore who is dealing with a lot in one year her parents are divorced her dad is marrying his mistress um her older sister is getting married to this dorky guy lewis she finds out her best friend is pregnant and her best friend's boyfriend tragically dies in front of them and throughout like all these whirlwind of events Hallie finds love with uh Macon Forrester. Macon Forrester is such the name of like the cool guy at a, at a oh, high yeah. school in a in a YA book. It is like such a name for that. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is such a YA name. I want to know mm-hmm. how he came across in the movie because I'm bringing a lot of how he's portrayed in the book into how I see him. Oh yeah, we will. Oh, we are gonna get into <laughs> okay. into the the Macon Foresters of two thousand and three because that is a world I am way too familiar with. Uh, not not voluntarily, and I may add. <laughs> um, so this is having an anniversary year. I don't think anyone is celebrating How to Deal's twentieth anniversary except for maybe us, mm-hmm. uh, because I did try to do some digging for some research to see if there was any like you know, retro reviews or we were too hard on this movie sort of reclamations. They don't exist. Like they do not exist. Um, So, (laughs) hey, happy birthday. How to deal. We're celebrating you. Uh, But Harmony, what kind of context do you want to bring to the table for the release of this title? So looking at the teen movie sphere, we just did 13 not too long ago. I think it was like three weeks ago. And this also comes out in the, uh, the, the teen movie wasteland that was dominated by Disney and Disney-like fair in the wake of 9-11, but before Mean Girls. Which, uh, it's weird that that's becoming a recurring thing to mention because it really does describe how teen stuff was being shaped in the early 2000s. So, without being redundant, there's not too much to say other than, I find it really interesting that Mandy Moore was always portrayed as, like, the good girl of, like, pop stardom. And cinematically, mm-hmm. she's not a good girl per se. I feel like 
all of her stuff was just largely influenced by her portrayal in A Walk to Remember. Because she's mean in Princess Diaries. She's a, a parody of the good Christian girl in Saved. And then there's this where it's just kind of like she's going through some things. But again, she's not necessarily the, the good girl that you know her from in like the sick lit. Yeah, that's a really good point. What is funny is she is that way in the book. Like Hallie's personality is not this like cool kind of jaded girl in the book. Like that's more Scarlet's thing. Sorry really? if I'm going to be bringing a lot of like in the book. Oh, no, no, no by all do. means. That, that's do. your thing. And <laughs> I would love to know that because I almost feel like there was an active choice for Mandy Moore to not get pigeonholed as like the good Christian girl after A Walk to Remember was so successful because that would certainly explain the changes they made to this uh, from its source material. But something I think that is interesting and worth bringing up is since there's not a ton of context, I was like, let me just see what people were saying about this movie at the time. Let me see what mm -hmm. people have said about this movie in um, in the years since. And I have to say that the, the, the critics' reviews of this just on Rotten Tomatoes are not nice. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone thinks they are so clever where someone, uh, let's see here, Peter Travers from Rolling Stone when this movie came out, said the pop diva goes down with the bubbles in this hopelessly shallow soap opera or Nell Minow from common sense media says even more fans might find this hard to deal with. But my, my, my personal favorites, there's two of them. One Richard Roper is one of the only positive people to give this a review that like it says this is nice and a welcome reprieve from other teen fair at the time. And uh, one from Good Morning America by Joe Siegel, who complains that you should not show this to children under the age of 13 because of sex scenes, the F word, teenage pregnancy, teenage death, tobacco use, alcohol use, and drug use. This is a PG-13 film. You shouldn't technically yeah. be showing it to them anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, looking at the critic reviews from this time period is also so funny because... I'm pretty sure everyone that you just named was a man in at least their 30s, if not their 40s. So this is not the target demo. One um, of them's a lady. Okay, one of them's a lady. I did not mean to discredit her. Fully admitting, was not super paying attention to all the names that you said. <laughs> um, but it's always really fascinating to me when you get these middle-aged men who are making these declarative reviews about a movie that has no interest in appeasing them. And that's not to say that like we shouldn't be critical of teen films we absolutely should be but it's like come on guys like this was not meant for you you calling it shallow did you forget what it's like to be a teenager and have emotions this humongous it's just a matter of judging a film for what it is and not what you think it should be that's a very, very good point. And I think that takes us into diving in deeper. So it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. We're in the heart of summer prom party, and hopefully you all are all surviving. We're, we're doing our best over here, consistently having to record without the air on in Los Angeles. It is, it is a lot. But we got some really fun stuff over on the Patreon for you to be excited about this month. Speaking of unbearable heat and no relief from it, for our Sadie Hawkins dance, we're covering a suggestion box film from a number of people. We're doing Holes and a, a personal favorite from my neck of the woods, Tommy Boy. So we're talking about a, a boyish man in that one. 
for our musical milestones, we are going to be covering 90s Eurodance and Europop as filtered through like us filthy Americans where we really just got like the cream of the crop over here. And this may or may not be inspired specifically by Barbie Girl. And we're making up for some lost time because we got uh, we got caught with the COVID finally in the back part of July. And you're going to get two episodes of us covering the total six episodes from the start of My So-Called Life. You're also going to get a double dose of BJ's monthly newsletter to make up for us being too sick to do it last month, as well as the one for this month. In addition to all that, you'll get my fun indie playlist, as well as access to the suggestion box, where you can go ahead and throw in your own suggestions, either for the Sadie Hawkins dance, the main show, or anything else. With this being August, it is officially going to be three whole years of This Ends It Prom, and... We truly could not have done it without all of you. We even bought new microphones to celebrate, and hopefully we sound way better to your to your ears. As always, if you're not able to financially support the podcast in any way, the best thing you can possibly do to support us is recommend us to a friend, rate, review, do all, do all that fun stuff. Thank you all so much, and now back to the movie. Alrighty, so let's talk about... Hallie. This is our second Hallie in like a very recent <laughs> number of episodes because Hallie is also in the parent yeah, trap. <laughs> that's great. But Stephanie, tell me how you feel about Hallie and please bring in how she differs from the book because I've not read Sarah Dustin's novels. This is an area that escaped me. So this is new information to me and I'm very excited. <laughs> um, I like Mandy Moore's Hallie. She took a while to grow on me. But yeah, she kind of has this like bitter jaded like I don't believe in love because like my parents are divorced and Mm -hmm. everything is a lie and I don't know why people get married they're just lying to each other until I found Macon and now I'm second guessing all those things um the book is a lot more about her friendship with Scarlett and her relationship with her mom and her and Macon do not end up together in the book Huh, that is a massive change. Yeah, that well, that was the thing that really caught me off guard the first time I saw it. I was like, excuse me, what is he doing back here? He's not <laughs> supposed to be here. Um, the the book, I won't get like too detailed into it. The book opens up with Michael's death. He died in a motorcycle accident, and Hallie gets a call from Scarlett to like come home from camp. And Scarlett is like a parentified child of a single mom, and she's kind of like the tougher one of the two. And Hallie's kind of always been in her shadow and her mom is this like parenting coach author who like writes books on parenting and they're having a hard time navigating her wanting to be more independent as she becomes a teenager and pushing away from her mother. That's like a big part of the book and like her relationship with Macon is like a way that she does that and like pushes those boundaries and exercises, you know, this rebellion and independence. Why didn't we get that movie? (laughs) That's a lot of details that did not make it onto screen. (laughs) That's what I was saying. Um, All the family stuff comes from that summer. And I understand why that summer is not a movie because it's very passive. Like the protagonist in that is just dealing with like the parents divorce and like the sister getting married and it's very internal. And I one thing I love about Sarah Dessen is she doesn't talk down to teenagers. And I think she's so empathetic to what it's like to be a teenager and not have any control of giant things happening in your life which is what that summer is about Mm -hmm. and that makes it a bit more into the movie where it's her 
dealing with all these things that are changing her life that are completely out of her control. I do really like that aspect of this movie. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things to critique in this movie for sure, but there are a lot of things to praise. And I do like how this movie is very upfront about how sometimes really bad things happen to you as a teenager or not necessarily bad, but just kind of world changing. And it's just another day for you. Like this Mm -hmm. movie is very casual with how Michael dies, where it's like he just dies on the soccer field and you just have to deal with it. And now you have to go to a funeral. Whereas in another movie, that would be like the dramatic climax of a film is somebody dying. And this is like, nope, we've been here for 15 minutes and we're going to kill this kid. And you're like, Mm -hmm. oh shit. Um, I'm very (laughs) interested in the choice to have him die in front of all of them I think maybe it's because they wanted it to feel more tangible because when Mm -hmm. you hear about somebody dying it's obviously a tragedy like they're gone but when you watch somebody die that is incredibly traumatic and yes it is also very weird that they're like (laughs) they they don't unpack that in the movie that they watched it happen (laughs) I don't know It's, it's a visual medium show don't tell I guess yeah, that's true. Like, how often does it happen in like particularly dramatic things where someone comes knocking on the door at like 1 a.m. going like there was an accident like that's, that's very really played point. out at this point. That's very, very true. And also 2003, we are in like the era of the melodramatic teen series uh, with things like, you know, Dawson's Creek and the OC and a lot of these shows were going on. So it was pretty common to deal with teens dying at this point. So it does make sense that it's going to feel a little bit soapy in its presentation. But yeah, the fact that they don't unpack that is wild. And hearing the changes to Scarlet is incredible to me because Mm -hmm. I... I, so first off, I love Alexandra Holden. This is her yeah. third appearance on the show after Drop Dead Gorgeous and Sugar and Spice. And she always plays kind of these like pushovers or meek kind of girls. I would have loved to see her have a turn where she's like a little bit feistier. I think that would yeah. be really interesting. And I think also in the book, it's like she's been this, like I said, parentified child who's kind of taking care of her flaky mom. And she just kind of seems a little more put together when she says that she's keeping the baby. Mm hmm. I don't. OK. There's um, a lot there. Yeah, there's like a, <laughs> because, there's a lot. There. There, there's a lot to unpack there. Because, yeah, this movie is also really casual about teen pregnancy, like very casual, which in a mm-hmm. weird way is kind of refreshing because it's not treating it like with the severity or melodrama that most movies or shows would. But at the same time, it feels like it's not taking it seriously enough. It's also the movie does not unpack the fact that the father of this baby is dead. And like that is a whole other can of worms to be processing. Um, The change. Yeah. The changes to these characters. I understand things change a lot when you go from book to movie. But that is such a huge change. And even with the Hallie change is pretty huge. And I'm trying to figure out why they went with like the disaffected route with her because Ashley Simpson hasn't happened yet. So like that sort of pivot culturally hasn't really happened yet for this type of girl. So I guess Hallie's a a trailblazer in this regard of the cut all your hair off and now it's short and black and (laughs) it was razor cut, not scissor cut. (laughs) I know someone who worked on the movie. I don't know if it's the screenwriter, but they had worked on like Clarissa explains it all in Daria. And I had Uh, always wondered if they were bringing that into it. That would track. 
bring okay. in a lot of that 90s energy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, disaffected yeah. 90s. Okay, this makes sense. This makes sense. Um, so my question for you as somebody who obviously fell in love with the books first, I have not read these books, but even hearing that these books were more so about like the sisterhood friendship and the relationship with your mother. And then it becomes kind of a run of the mill, like boy changes your life in high school story. How did you respond to this the first time you saw the movie? Um, I was furious. Like, I feel like it's just like that scene in Mean Girls where like Regina is walking into her room and just screaming. (laughs) (laughs) Just like pulling up the poster of how to deal. Like, do not trust this fugly slut. And reading, I remember like reading stuff being like, and Sarah Dustin gave her okay. I'm like, how could you? Oh, Sarah Dustin, how could you do this to us? I mean, because she probably got a nice check for that. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Um, Part of me always wished that this was going to open the door to more Sarah Dustin adaptations. And we did not get them for a long time until like, I think like a year or two ago with Along for the Ride. Was that a Netflix movie? Yes. Okay. Is it any good? I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Um, I was a... nervous about watching it but my sister said it's pretty good and pretty faithful and I think I heard that she signed a deal with Netflix for like a few of her books oh good for her get that (laughs) so Harmony with no knowledge of any of this how do you feel about the characters of Hallie and Scarlet I I think I feel about them how I sort of feel about this whole movie maybe which is like, we were talking about how it's like, well, they don't really unpack things, and, like, there's a lot of changes that had to be made. Like, knowing how much you have to condense from a book to get it to fit into, like, you know, a sub-two-hour movie, that's a lot. But knowing that they crammed two books into here is – it, it kind of makes a lot of sense. Because on one hand, I like that, you know, you have this sort of mentality just floating around the movie of, like, the world doesn't stop just because stuff is changing – there's constantly mm-hmm. big life events happening and you just have to go to school the next day. You got to get up and put your shoes on the next morning. Like that's just a thing that you have to deal with. On the other hand, the tempo for this movie is ridiculous. And it's like, it feels like a <laughs> compilation of events, not really structured together like a full movie. Cause sometimes it just goes like, I, I would look down at my phone to just be like, what do I know this actor from? And the answer was it's Dylan Baker and he's in a million things. But like, I would go, what do I know this guy from? And I scroll and I scroll and I scroll. And then like two minutes later, I look up and go, where are we? What happened? <laughs> like this movie just changes constantly and there's stuff just f- flying at you. And the scenes just decide to like end and move on to like the next big traumatic life event. <laughs> We had a montage set to Liz Fair, so there are a couple now. Yes. Like, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I do love that song, though. Like, I do, too. I, I, I'm not the biggest Liz Fair person. I've tried Exile and Guyville for the better part of 25 years and just be like, maybe this will be the time where I get it. But I'm like, but I get, why can't I? Like, that's a song I understand. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I, I think that there's lots of little moments, but as far as like, understanding kind of where these characters are going or even what this movie is trying to say, I still haven't fully parsed it out just yet. Like, I'm still not entirely sure, I guess. I think part of that, too, is that this movie kind of sets an unrealistic tone because one of the first scenes that we get 
is, you know, we, we learn more about Alice and Janny and we understand that she's going through the divorce and she's making the video for video dating. And she right off the rip is dropping the movie's first F bomb. She's (laughs) it's really incredible. Like it's an amazing monologue, Um, but she's losing it. And she's talking about like, she's so bitter. And I was like, Oh yeah, Allison, this is a nice look for you. I love this. And then I had to like check myself and it's like, the rest of the movie is not like this, BJ. It's not like this. This is one scene where she's like this. This is going to get very uh, melodramatic very fast. She's going to soften very quickly when she gets wooed by a Civil War soldier giving her a Coke. And then she's going to go, your father's a lovely man. And I'm like, is he, though? <laughs> oh, my gosh. First of all, I love her monologue uh, with the video dating thing. And my favorite part is the, like, little smile she does at the end <laughs> yes oh my god she's incredible i also am so thankful that i was not an adult during the era oh of god. the video dating like mm-hmm. app dating is a hellscape in and of itself and that's it's just an evol it's just an evolved form of video dating but like once that video is out there like you can't change that you can't just randomly update your picture the way you can on a dating app now like that is just out there for strangers and that is horrifying. You get the lady who really likes cats. <laughs> it's which, so stressful. Which I, I think I think that video was actually fake, but still. Yeah, it's still really funny. <laughs> of course you think it's weird that I didn't just use the phone, but you're also glad because it's so much better to talk in person, especially when I've come on such a specific purpose, which is why you're going to cut me some slack here. You are absolutely crazy. I've been called worse. You're going to kiss me, Hallie. You're going to come a little closer. So I can put my arms around you. And then on the count of three, two, one. Harmony, I did want to say about the Civil War soldier, the way that that was translated from the book, Mm -hmm. it's in Someone Like You, Scarlett's mom starts dating this guy named Steve, who is a a LARPer, like a medieval LARPer, and he gets like her into it, and it's so cute, and then at the end, when Scarlett is having the baby, like... All the friends are in full costume, like waiting in the waiting room. And you hear like the clink, clink, clink of the armor as they walk oh, around. That would have been way better. That I know. Like we, we are a very strong pro role models podcast. So like we're really <laughs> big into like the medieval fight club of it all. But like that's so much cooler than we introduce him as one of several very notable examples of product placement in this movie. And then we're not going to address why he's a civil war soldier for like 40 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, also, where is this set? I don't have any idea. Somewhere in the South, apparently, but not that far South because no one has an accent. Maybe like Virginia? I don't know. I don't know. I thought I saw Jersey plates at one point, but um, Sarah Dessen is very like Nicholas Sparks in that all her books are very North Carolina-centric. Yeah. That, that, that would okay, track, yeah. North Carolina tracks, but then that also makes me have this kind of like uh, question of, if, if you're set in one of the Carolinas, 
it makes sense that somebody would be a Civil War reenactor, but also why? Why are we doing this? What year did Sweet Home Alabama come out? Because he definitely is fighting for the South in that one, and it is very uncomfortable and has made that movie age way worse than you could have ever imagined. Fred Ward just really likes the Confederacy in that movie, and it's really upsetting. They have, like, Confederacy. R.I.P. Fred Ward, you're a real one, just not in that movie. (laughs) They have Confederacy pillows in that movie. It's wild. Um, Yeah, I kind of have this, like, knee-jerk. Even when somebody is fighting for, like, the union in terms of, like, reenactment, I'm like, but why do you want to do this? (laughs) Why is this a thing that interests you? I don't know. It's telling history or something. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) books exist and they're really cool. But people (laughs) don't like to read sometimes, BJ. That's why they would watch the movie version of this and apparently get an inferior product. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really devastated that we lost uh, LARPers in a delivery room. That is a visual that I'm obsessed with. I love the concept of that. I love the concept of Allison Janney in like a wizard robe. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like okay the the big takeaway that I have from this episode is that I'm probably going to end up reading Sarah Dessa's books after this as a 30 something adult I'm going to be reading YA books but you know that's not super out of the realm of possibility for me no so okay another character that we've been like kind of digging on but haven't really dug into is dad how is dad in the movie versus the book so this dad is pulled from that summer where he's like a news guy, um, but they gave him the job from someone like you where he's like a radio DJ local celebrity. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think he has all the like barking and <laughs> um, stuff that he has in the movie, but I don't know. I felt like that one translated pretty well. Like I do like things that they kept from that summer in the movie like I really love the the sister relationship but I don't know Peter Gallagher is a trip in this we we've been getting a lot of Peter Gallagher just on accident recently because we also watch Palm Springs for the first time and mm-hmm. he's the dad in that um, oh, yeah I always like him as that guy whose name I didn't learn until we actually watched this movie and I was like <laughs> I need to learn this guy's name because I can't just go the actor who looks like the guy from train forever <laughs> Yeah, this, okay, so knowing that this is not, like, fully the character, I do think that this is a very good update for 2003 because these sorts of, like, radio personality guys were very much a thing. And the fact that he's a dad and this is the thing that he's into does add, like, an inherent layer of patheticness to him of, Mm -hmm. like, oh, of course, he's, like, the cool radio dad who's marrying the mistress. Like, I know who this character is, pretty much immediately based on that characterization. So in terms of the film, like that I think is really, really effective. The I just the hair is so 2003. Every dad the going soul through, patch is so 2003. Oh my God. Like I look at him and I'm like, you are recently divorced. You are going through a midlife crisis and you want people to think that you're still cool. Like I know all of these things about you just by how they put you in, in hair and makeup. Incredible. That's the power of like good hair, makeup, styling, production design. You can learn so much about a character based off of very, very intentional yeah. choices. Yeah, in another era, he definitely would have been like an Ed Hardy dad. Oh, oh like yeah. in a few years, he would have been yeah. an Ed Hardy dad. During this period, <laughs> he would have been like a Von Dutch dad. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's Von Dutch dad for sure. Oh my god. He probably and he probably like aspires to be like an Ashton Kutcher type too. So 
I mean, he is all the rage during this time. But, like, I do love that the movie makes, like, no bones about portraying him exactly how he is, which is, like, they're at a Dave & Buster's. Again, lots of products in this movie because, because. But, like, the only guy that recognizes him is, like, some, like, portly biker who's, like, belly is bursting out of his shirt and he puts it on the table. And it's just like, oh, oh, no. Like, you're being barked at by a stranger in front of a bunch of children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a few things more humiliating or I, what I should say should be humbling is a stranger barking at you while children play skee-ball. Like, <laughs> that is a sign to maybe reassess the, the way your life is going. But, okay, I do want to talk about that biker. The shot of him putting his gut on the table, that did not need to be there. That nope. was just 2000s shitty fat phobia on yep. parade. <laughs> and, like, mind yeah. you, when they cut to him a second time, his shirt isn't unbuttoned anymore. So it's like, right. oh, well, now you're just causing inconsistencies. Right. Yeah, I will say I haven't reread Sarah Dawson in a while, but unfortunately, I do think there is some elements of that in her work, especially in the late 90s, early aughts. Oh, it is, it's the era. It's the era. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I never want to, like, give people a pass for that sort of thing, but it is a historical to pretend that that was not the pervasive narrative of our time period. And of course the art that we consume at that time is going to reflect that because even if she doesn't personally hold those feelings, she's also getting pummeled by the same horrific messaging that the rest of us were. And that's Mm -hmm. going to leak into the kind of stories that she tells because that's how teens are being affected so like I get it mm-hmm. um, like it's so funny Harmony and I watched rewatched Tommy Boy last night and uh, we're d- gonna talk about that on the Sadie Hawkins dance and that movie is just like nothing but fat jokes and it's like but one they're all funny so none of them feel offensive but two none of them feel like punchlines they all feel like in universe characterization so it hits me in a way that like doesn't offend me whereas like this guy putting his gut on the table that is a punchline that is an intentional decision someone made to be shitty mm-hmm. and it's like okay yeah that now i know the difference <laughs> there's a fine line between that shot and fat guy in a little coat yes there is and one of them is really funny and one of them makes me mad <laughs> well i mean not everyone has the comedic timing of chris farley so that's a great point no one does um so we don't get to see a whole lot of dad's wife mistress lady does she have a more prominent presence in the book no honestly about as much as she's featured in the movie i think they call her the weather pet i think like oh my god and she's the weather girl so she's the weather pet Mm -hmm. weather pet feels like the meteorologist equivalent of calling someone like a lot lizard or a ramp tramp or a ring rat (laughs) like I did not know that these sorts of, like, misogynist nicknames existed for the world of, like, weather news. But I shouldn't be surprised. Of course it does. (laughs) I just like that this lady just takes on the role of being like, I'm married right now, so that means I'm your mother. Come on, let's hug. Like, she's really (laughs) active in the role of being a mom now for these, like full adults (laughs) after she tells them that she had to pressure him to finally leave his wife for her right which you know that's exactly what you want to hear from your new stepmom is like i had to bully your father into divorcing your mother like can you imagine i'm the victim here right (laughs) i mean what mistress hasn't been there like tale as old as time (laughs) um so the other like really big relationship I'm saving Macon for last, but the other really big relationship in this movie is also between Hallie and her sister. And I'm curious how this translates. 
Um, so yeah, this is the relationship from that summer. I am glad that this made it into the movie. Um, and it's pretty on par with how she is in the book. Like she just starts going absolutely nuts planning this wedding with Lewis. I will say Lewis in the movie I like more than Lewis in the book. Like he's Ooh, I love older. That. Yeah, he's older in the book. And so his like I don't know, weird stuff comes out more controlling like uh after the bachelorette party. Like I feel like in the movie it's played more like betrayal and heartbreak whereas like in the book it seems more like I you're not allowed to do this. Mm. Mm. Um, it's a sweeter relationship, I think, in the movie versus in the book. Um, we do get a bit more sister stuff because Haven is spiraling about losing her sister on top of all this. Like her sister's going to be moving out of the room that they've shared her whole life. And she's dealing with that. But I like it. I like a lot of the changes that they made for the movie. Oh, good. I do like the relationship in the movie. I like that the sis. like I look at these sisters and I see them as sisters in the sense of how they relate to one another, but they are so different in personality, but it doesn't feel like cartoonishly different, if that makes sense. I feel similarly yeah. to the sister relationship in 16 Candles, which is also dealing with a wedding happening like during a mm-hmm. big part of your teen life. So these these have a little bit of similarities in that regard, but it's the same thing with those sisters where I'm like, I see how your sisters and that you have a relationship, but you are also very different people. And mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Definitely. Do you guys watch uh, Somebody Somewhere on HBO? I do. Okay. Yeah. She's the sister on that. Yeah. Yeah. I was like looking up like what she's been doing and it's one of those like people age and your brain like forgets what they looked like when they were younger. And it's like, Oh my God, <laughs> like that's you. Um, which I think is really exciting. Um, I know I was so excited. I'm like, Oh, you're kind of playing a similar role too. Right. <laughs> um, I also love to that. And I don't know if this is the same in the book. I do have like a weird affinity for when sisters have very different hair colors too. Um, I don't know why. I think it's because my sister's a ginger. Um, so no one ever believed us when we were related. Um, especially like we went to the same college and my sister was in a sorority and I was obviously a theater kid and I look the way that I do. And she was also really, really fit. And people were like, there's no way you're related. Like you are not <laughs> sisters. And we would get yeah. like really defensive. Like we are sisters and like very yeah bold about it so I love seeing that you know she has like the whitest Hitchcockian blonde hair and then you know this is Mandy Moore in her brown hair like short like choppy cut era um I don't know just the visual that always makes me feel some kind of way and this is just me projecting my own feelings onto a movie well BJ I mean something that you're really uh really burying here is that you went to a stylist with Mandy Moore's hair from this movie and okay I want this Okay, look. Yes, I did. Um, we've Was talked- it really from this one? It is from the press tour of this okay. movie. But when I got my Josie haircut, which I talk about on the show all the time, of bringing in Rachel Lee Cook and getting Josie, when I needed to evolve past Josie where it couldn't be so like flat iron flip, Uh, Mm -hmm. There was an image of Mandy Moore in like a white tank top with like long necklaces because it's 2003. And it was when her hair was kind of growing out just a little bit from making this movie. And she has like this 
more mature styling of the Josie cut. And it's so cute. And I definitely brought that image <laughs> into like cost cutters. And I was like, can I have this haircut? And they're like, sure. It's very close to what you already have. And I'm like, but it looks different. They're like, you style it differently, but sure. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm learning. I'm 13. <laughs> so yes, I have an affinity for this era of Mandy Moore for obvious reasons. I can't tell you how many hours I spent in my bathroom with like a round brush and a blow dryer and I could not get my hair to flip out. It's hard. It's, it's a, it is a very hard thing. And my hair, the left side was always like, boom, perfect. Mm -hmm. And then the right side was the problem child and would like roll in on itself. And I'm like, okay, well, this is an issue. But you know what? That's why the right side of my hair is now shaved all the time. And you I don't have to, have to punish deal it. with it. <laughs> I mean, I'd punish it with radiation. What's, what's worse than that? <laughs> Your big sister is getting married in three and a half hours. <laughs> But you know, if you get nervous, you can always. <laughs> you remember the sign? Of course, you taught it to me, remember? So, you know, just like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll do something. I'll yell, fire. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, let's talk about making Forrester. Stephanie, I'm going to have you lead on this. <laughs> Give me your feelings on Macon Forrester. In the movie, he's portrayed in a much more sympathetic light. In the book, he's kind of, I feel like, just a dirtbag. He's very mm -hmm. shady. He's, like, hardly ever at school, um, which they do allude to in the movie that he's, like, doesn't show up. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know, just kind of a crappy boyfriend. And the when they go to the party and they are... Um, and they're going to have sex. Hallie is planning on doing it because she senses that he's starting to pull away and be like weird and manipulative. So it's like coming from there, um, which is not in the movie at all. Like we don't get that like weird, shady, like manipulative part of him, which they end up together at the end. So I guess mm -hmm. that makes sense. They would not want to put that in there. Yeah, I, uh, I that, that was another, like <laughs> I, I completely understand this. That was one of those scenes where like, they're doing their like romantic thing at the, uh, New Year's party. And I was, was like, some song was playing and I'm like, what is this like John Mayer ass song that is playing? That's supposed to be really romantic. And I'm trying to look it up. And next thing I know, she's running in the snow and I go, what the <laughs> fuck happened? They didn't even have a fight. <laughs> so this was just yeah. another one of those situations, but like. I, I agree that I can I, I can see like the inklings like the little the little traces of where there is a a douchier boy in here, but like instead you just kind of have to I guess it's up to the viewer on whether or not you think like vaguely negging someone with reverse psychology is charming yeah. or not. Right, this whole Jedi mind trick thing. I'm like, is this reverse psychology? And that's like not super chill. Like that's not a a great healthy way of communicating with your partner. But it's charming because he's making Star Wars references after like Phantom Menace came out, so you know he's a real nerd. <laughs> Can't believe you don't find it absolutely romantic. <laughs> you want to know what I find romantic? Showing up to a funeral with an open vest covered in bling like you work at TJI Fridays and playing the flaming lips. That is romance to me. 
what the hell is that scene? <laughs> hey, he knows his friend. He knows exactly what he would have wanted at his funeral. He also knows that they needed to stop that needle drop before it got to the lyric of all everyone you know will die. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, isn't he wearing a fedora in that scene too? Yes. On top of everything. <laughs> He's wearing a fedora and he clearly like parted his hair in the middle so he would have even hair on both sides because his hair is not cut that way in the rest of the movie. So they styled it so he would have like hair to frame both sides of his face. It, so I know it's a disaster under there. Like it's not cute. It's real bad. Um, he, oh my God. I just like, I forgot. I think I like purged that out of my mind. I was like, I know that Michael's going to die because when he started keeling over harmony was like oh is he like is he okay is he gonna have a heart attack or are they gonna kill him and then they killed him and he's like oh no, my god that's not what i said it's because he doesn't grab his chest he grabs like his side kind of oh yeah and i'm like what it is appendix burst like what happened and then it's like oh no it's his heart because he died with his hand on his heart and i'm like that's not what he grabbed but okay yeah <laughs> so he dies and it's like okay i know that he's gonna die i know there's gonna be a funeral i 100 percent forgot about that outfit and that he brings a boombox to be like, do you realize? And you're like, uh, what is happening? I mean, the, the Flaming Lips, like, I really like that album. And I've been told by numerous people they put on a great live show. So, like, the acoustics in that church coming out of those tiny speakers, I'm sure, was stellar. Oh, yeah. It's probably great. Just like the real thing. <laughs> Just, oh, such a such a weird choice. Um, okay. So... Knowing that he's a little bit scummier in the book, I kind of wish we would have seen that because I definitely think we need more movies where it's about learning that the first guy that you like fall in love with might not actually be good. Um, I think that that is a, a very important message that we don't see enough of. But I also completely understand why they turned this into a love interest and made him this way because this is the era of Freaky Friday, where we're gonna get Chad Michael Murray being the guy with the motorcycle who's a musician. And like, we're sort of pivoting away from like, ooh, Jake Ryan, most popular boy in school, he's an athlete, being the guy that everybody has a crush on and turning it into like the artiste, the soft boy. Wow. Like, he likes the strokes. <laughs> yeah. But like that is the boy that we are going to slowly start pivoting towards in the 2000s of like that's the one that you have a crush on. Like even Aaron, like even Aaron Samuels and Mean Girls, like he has swoopy hair. Like that is a huge change from like the clean cut Reagan era yeah. boys. Mm -hmm. um, so I get why they're doing this um, because I also – was on the receiving end of affection of a lot of boys like Macon when I was in middle school and in high school. Mm -hmm. And they all have the same fucking shtick. And it's this. This is the shtick they have. Like the Jedi mind trick? Yes. Like doing Jedi mind trick stuff. Like doing things that are like low-key, like a little manipulative. Um, and not low-key. It's high-key manipulative. But then like making it cute because they learned about it in a movie or like they relate to you using pop culture. And there are ways to do it where I think it's very sweet. Like a movie that I am shocked we've yet to talk about on this podcast is Spontaneous from 2020, which was my favorite movie that was released that year. And there is a whole thing about E.T. and like, you know, touching of the of the fingers and be good. And it's a big thing in that movie. But it is so sincere and genuine that it doesn't feel like a schlocky movie reference or like, <laughs> I understand that reference. Like it doesn't have that energy. Whereas this movie, it 
does feel like that. It does feel like him being like, I'm referencing Star Wars so that you know I'm a cool guy with nerdy interests. I mean, yeah, like functionally as like a as as a piece of this story, I understand what purpose he serves probably from like production notes or like the studio being like there needs to be a love interest because too much sad shit happens in this movie. They need to Mm -hmm. fall in love at the end. She needs a win. So like I understand why he ended up this way, I think. Also, people who um, watch teen films, especially around this time, I think need like a narratively satisfying ending. And you're supposed to end up with the boy uh, at the end, obviously. But I think it's really weird that you have their their fight on on New Year's Eve and like they they veer off the road and hit a tree and he breaks her arm and then he just vanishes because he didn't know how to deal as it were yeah. and then they're just cool like I guess they have like a fight and they sort of work their way through it but like not really I, I guess my biggest hang up in terms of like him being like a nice boy in this one is, there needs to be a character to break through her cynicism about relationships because she's watching everyone around her struggle in relationships. And I don't feel like this guy's good enough. I don't feel like he's, I don't feel like he's the guy who could break through like the force field of romance that she has surrounded herself with. Yeah, he definitely doesn't. I feel like the thing that does it in the movie is like, um, Watching her mom and then when she sees Lewis run after her sister in the airport and like repropose, mm-hmm. I feel like her face looks just like that butterfly meme where she's like, is this love? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, you're totally right, though. And for a movie that is all about a an experience that I think is very real, which is like you become very uninterested in lover relationships because all of the relationships you're surrounded by are complicated and messy, like that that is a very real thing and i understand kind of the narrative of oh but then you meet the one person and then suddenly it changes your worldview because i think that that is it is a little cheesy yes but it's also not inaccurate i think that's what happens to a lot of people um but i agree that he just he doesn't feel good enough to shake that worldview he doesn't seem like the kind of person that hallie would be willing to like change her perspective on the world for he just he doesn't have it and that's also not to say that like Trent Ford who's playing him is doing a bad job I think he's doing a very good job and we watched the trailer and he even gets like an introducing Trent Ford like Mm -hmm. they made a big deal about this guy and I think he's doing good work it just isn't enough for me like I don't I would still meet this guy and see their relationship and have that fight and be like, yeah, what was I thinking? Dating boys in high school is fucking dumb. Yeah. Like Stephanie, I I agree with you that I don't even know if it's necessarily like anything he does. It's that she's seeing romance around her and that sort of softens her. But like, I, I like the, again, this is like, I don't know exactly like what messaging I'm supposed to take away from this movie because on one hand it feels like it's saying that, Romance is hard and sometimes you fight and sometimes it's difficult and like sometimes you're not on the same page, but like you can get on the same page. Like if you're emotionally closed off like Alice and Janney in this movie, like, you know what, you can just meet the right guy and he'll just pull you out of your shell and you know what, that's all you need. But then it kind of pivots away from 
the uh, that the fact that like romance is difficult and like that being a very real thing to end up with like this very uh, obvious romance ending that feels almost counterintuitive to like it, it it's 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 inauthentic in what feels like a very uh, real grounded theme in a boom full of lots of drama. Yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah, I don't know. He just isn't strong enough. Yeah, it's all these external factors. And then the thing with her grandma, too, where she's like, first loves are never really over. I'm like, what kind of advice is that? Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Okay. Grandma. Is, is grandma doing drugs in the book, too? Or did they just add that in for a quirky character trait? Because I do love it. But that grandma is acting in a way that no one has ever acted while high. Um, what is going not, on with grandma? Not, not high on weed, anyway. <laughs> right. This movie doesn't know what drugs do. <laughs> She's not that way in the book. Um, that is a, a movie quirk. But I love it. Like, mother, are you smoking the cannabis again? Right. <laughs> And, like, based on wherever they live, like, where's Grandma getting her drugs? Like, I have a lot of questions. It's 2003. It was not as easy to get drugs for the elderly at this point in time. Is she hanging out behind a McDonald's parking lot, like, making deals? What's going on? I, I want her like story. It like she had some kind of a prescription because Allison Janney says, like, you had it, like, you could have, you used it when you're sick, Mom, but you're not sick anymore. And she's like, it makes me feel good, though. Mm -hmm. right that's so what she thinking. must still have some kind of like medical <laughs> prescription she still got somewhere with some shady doctor uh. she's got glaucoma <laughs> yeah <laughs> I don't yeah know. Sp speaking of smoking like they go over for like the thanksgiving dinner at what the, what will be the future in-laws house and uh like the mom in that family has sort of a southern accent so again i think they're sort of in the south but it, it, first of all, that dinner is a disaster uh, in every sense of the word. But like, Hallie goes upstairs and like they just have like a little a little tea canister full of cigarettes in the bathroom. But also, yeah. they have a smoke detector in the bathroom, so it feels like a trap. <laughs> yeah, mixed messages here. Like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. I mean, I have a rule of thumb, which is that I do not trust uh, any household that has an all-white dining room. Um, that's just, that's dangerous to me. And that dining room gives me anxiety. There's too much white in that dining room. <laughs> I mean, she does fuck up that chair when that Cornish Gainham goes flying. Yeah. And that move feels very, like, slapsticky. So, again, like, this movie tonally is kind of all over the place. Yeah, it definitely feels like studio notes. Like, this needs, you need to lighten this up a bit mm -hmm. more. We've got a lot of dark themes. Yeah, Put in a quirky yeah. smoking grandma. <laughs> like a little bit of dinner shenanigans yeah like this feels almost like like this feels kind of like the, the the scene in orange county where like the benefactors that would give him money come over and it's just uh an odd it's an odds like sex comedy slapstick hijinks kind of scene in what feels like an indie fair like right this feels like all of the themes should be an indie movie handling them but then it's like no we're we're a blockbuster we want to be a blockbuster throw all this kitschy obvious stuff in there that people will love and we can put in the trailer yeah that's a really good point it does have that energy and what's weird is that going into this conversation I was very much like, this movie doesn't really do much for me. This is not, you know, one of my favorites, but, you know, I get why people love it. And then I read the reviews of it and I saw so many men basically being like, 
the only people who should ever watch this are teenagers and anyone else should avoid it because it fucking sucks. And then I got weirdly defensive of it because I hate when I see people talk that way. And now we're having this conversation. And I'm like, wait, am I very endeared by this movie? Because it is so ridiculous in all of its decision making. And I live for movies like this. I'm very conflicted at this point about how I feel about this movie as we've been talking about it. Well, that's how I feel. Like every time I, I rewatch it, like the, the ridiculous choices charm me a little bit more. <laughs> every single time I'm like, that is pretty funny, though. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. Like, so... You said that in your journey, you watched this first time and you hated it. Where do you feel about it now after your most recent view? I mean, it's probably in like the three and a half star range. It's not a super memorable movie, I think, because of all the the changes that were made. Um, but it's enjoyable. And it is one like if I see it on a streaming service, I will watch it. It's kind of earned that comfort viewing spot. I like that. I think that, that three and a half. I think that that's very, very fair for this movie. <laughs> One could say generous, but... <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I think so. So do you hate me? Not you, per se. I hate the way that your hair falls in your face. And I hate the way that your voice gets really low when you're serious. And I hate the way that you bite your bottom lip when you're nervous. And the way your eyebrow goes. Like that? I hate that. So that's it. You just hate the way I walk and talk and look. No. That Jedi mind trick thing? I hate that. In the book... Like I said, Scarlet is dealing with a lot. Michael dies immediately in the beginning of the story, and she finds out she's pregnant very shortly after. Um, Also, another detail from the book is that they were kind of keeping their dating on the down low. So at the funeral, like his ex-girlfriend was the one that was publicly grieving because they never really went public. Ooh. Wow. That is interesting because the movie does not do that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he says it from when he before he plays the boombox. Like Michael loved Scarlet. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's wild. And also, everyone is like very um, mean to her at the funeral because she just wants to look nice for him and is wearing color. And everyone's like, "Ugh, she just wants attention." Well, she does that in the book too. But it's like they're like, "Who are you? And why are you doing this?" Yeah. I also Um, like that in the movie, we get a really good sense of the closeness of, of, of Hallie and Scarlett because she walks in on them and isn't immediately like leaving the room. Like they continue their conversation. Like there's a, that is comfortability (laughs) with your friends. Um, And, you know, Michael also seems to be like, well, this is just happening. Like I just kind of got to deal with this here. Um, So I do like that. But yo, the, the wearing color at a funeral, if people don't know you're the girlfriend that is a bold choice. <laughs> yeah. So when she finds out, there is a scene in the book where the mother drives them to an abortion clinic that I'm sure they cut out because this is PG-13. Um, and Scarlett is there with Hallie and she has a, 
a freak out. She gets scared and runs and decides to keep it basically out of grief. Like she has not processed this grief and is like, this is the only thing I have left mm-hmm. of Michael is really the the big thing that factors into her keeping this baby. Mm-hmm. How did you guys feel about it being portrayed in the movie? Um, okay. So what you just said is what I wished the movie would have done because I made that inference myself um, because I'm not saying who this person is, but I do have a friend who got pregnant by someone who then died. And that is why she kept the child. And she still has a like a relationship with the child, but she is not the primary like parent or like parental figure. Um, the father's parents are so like the kids grandparents are and we there was a period of time where it very much felt like are you gifting your dead boyfriend's parents a baby so that they have something to raise because that's what this feels like um and that has obviously changed and evolved because we're now adults but she was very young when this happened like i think she was 19 when this happened um so watching the movie i was like this is what this feels like to me this because i've seen this happen firsthand but the movie doesn't present it in that way. And it very much just feels like I'm pregnant. I'm keeping it the end. And you're like, you yeah, should, they really don't you should unpack into... this Scarlet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really don't get into that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say one thing that's funny. I remember the first time I read someone like you, I thought it was really progressive and sex positive because Scarlet never at any point regrets having sex. And I grew up, in fundamentalist Christianity. So I feel like all the media that I took in was very much, if someone has sex, their only purpose in the story is to be like, don't be like me, clean protagonist. There's Mm -hmm. still hope for you. (laughs) (laughs) And she's never, she never regrets anything. Like she was like, no, I made this choice and I would make this choice again. Um, Thinking about it though, in the book, they have sex one time and he dies the next day. Oh, my God. (laughs) Is she a femme fatale? Her name is Scarlet. (laughs) Oh, my God. That, like, okay, we're making a connection here. That is very much like Marion saved of, like, I had sex with my gay boyfriend to try to save him and then got pregnant, and then he got shipped away because he's gay. And you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's a lot to deal with in 24 hours. Yeah. And again, like they don't really I I feel like there's an inkling with Scarlett's mom where there's maybe like subtle things referencing like, oh, hey, you could get rid of it. There's still Mm -hmm. time or something. But like, again, it's not unpacked. I feel like this movie could have benefited if they removed some of the moving elements to let certain things like this breathe much more. Like it feels almost like every plot point, every serious moment is really claustrophobic because there's so much you could and should do with this story. For, like, specifically Scarlet and her dead boyfriend's baby. Yeah. And, I mean, in the book, that is a huge part of it, Mm -hmm. is just her dealing with this and the way people talk about her and Hallie having to defend her and Scarlet saying, like, I don't care. Like, I do not care what people say about me. Like, I stand by my choices. And we don't get that in the movie at all. No, not even close. Like, I think in a few years... um, that's something that people were really excited about with Juno in terms of like that character getting pregnant and seeing how people reacted to her getting significantly more pregnant as the movie goes on. Mm-hmm. I just don't think we were there in 2003, apparently. <laughs> yeah, not. I don't. Yeah, I don't think that we were there in 2003. I think it would have been like really controversial had that been a plot point or been fleshed out a little bit more. 
I really think that knowing what we did not get, I wish that somebody would make like a mini series or like a limited series doing like redoing this and including the the things that clearly had to be cut for time because so much of that is important and we still don't really see it um and it's been 20 years um i would love to see just like a whole series that's just scarlet dealing with this because that's heavy shit like that is very heavy shit for her to be dealing with and for her to just be kind of casual about it in this movie i think does a really big disservice to her journey and it does kind of cheapen it a little bit where it's it, it then starts to feel like oh, this is like for shock value or, oh, this is just for drama because it's not flushed out the way that I imagine, you know, a, a book is able to do because it has so much more time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would love, yeah, uh, a mini series. I don't think either of these two titles were any of the the ones included in the deal that Sarah Dessen signed. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of her other books are more straightforward romance, which some of those are my favorite and I like. But it's just funny because her first couple definitely were not. Like they were more about like sisterhood or grief or relationships with parents or addiction. Yeah. But like speaking of sisterhood, I think my favorite scene in this entire movie is the scene she has with her sister where she comes home and she's drunk outside. <laughs> like because one, it's a little it's a little funny, but it handles like severity and some stakes and some funny. And I think it does everything this movie's trying to do the best in like a condensed period where you know, you, you, you're you used to being, like, the younger sister, but, like, you're a more grown-up younger sister. And I don't know, like, I have such a soft spot for having to take care of, like, the way-too-drunk friend that you love so dearly, but they're just being a fucking hot shit mess. <laughs> it's just really nice. I, I wish we had more of that. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, like... I'm trying not to be disappointed in this movie knowing what I have been denied because without that information, I'm like, okay, now this movie is a little, you know, charming and I I get why people like it. But I just so much more now want what the book offered and I just I have to read it now. God damn it. <laughs> I have so many books on my on my to read list and now I have to add this. And in the book, uh it ends at well, it ends at prom. Can you believe it? Ooh. Um, <laughs> But Scarlett has a date and the date's mom makes her like a maternity prom dress so she can Aww. go to prom. Another like, saved <laughs> maternity wear yeah. prom. Oh, that's very sweet though. And, and yeah, she goes into labor at prom. <sighs> Again, saved. Mandy Moore, what are you doing? <laughs> I, I, I think that works better than at a wedding here. Yeah. I it, think that would... That, that grounds it so much more in like a teen universe, you know? Mm -hmm. That tells me that they wanted that shot of the two of them holding hands and running down the aisle out of the wedding. They wanted that shot. That's what, that's what I'm learning here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Harmony, the time has come. How to Deal is asking you to the prom where we're not seeing somebody go into labor but could have but didn't. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe? Or are you buying her tickets so she can go on her own? I'm still not totally sure how I feel about this movie or where to place it. I think that there is a really good movie in here somewhere. Um, I think that there's a lot of scenes that I really like. 
Um, Allison Janney's monologue is wonderful. I like Mandy Moore. I just I just have a soft spot for Mandy Moore. I think she's just wonderful, and I like seeing her in things aside from A Walk to Remember because I just think she's doing her best with that writing. Um, I don't know. I I don't truly know what to do with this, but I would absolutely like if it was on Pluto and I just was like looking for something to watch in the middle of the day where I'm like cleaning. Like I would put this on because I would look away and it would just constantly be just tripping all of the attention in my brain, just going like, look, things, many things. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to tentatively send it on its own, but I so much wish that there's, this was, was better. I, I was, I'm knowing what we didn't get. I was, I'm rooting for a better version of this story that we don't get. Oh goodness. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for talking to us about how to deal. And I encourage everyone to listen to your podcast. I would love if you could tell people about your podcast and where they can find it. Gosh, yeah, I host the Books in the Freezer podcast. It is about horror books and usual episodes are about a subgenre like road trip horror or motherhood horror or food horror. And me and a guest each recommend three books within that subgenre. I also have done like author interviews and BJ, I know you've come on and we've talked about like a single book. We talked about, uh, I think it was Undead Girl Gang. It was Lily Undead Anderson. Girl Gang. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was so fun. So yeah, uh, it's basically all about horror books and it's in all the usual podcast places. Beautiful. And as always, friends, you can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Blue Sky at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And also on Blue Sky at, you know, Harmony Colangelo, my normal last name. <laughs> and thank you as always to the Sonder Bombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, what band are you recommending based on how to deal? So this week, I am shouting out Chris Farron and his album, Doom Singer, which he has described as uh, optimistic nihilism. And every single song on this album is inspired by movies like Tar and I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Oh my where God. <laughs> they're just really dark and ambiguous about the theming and the messaging and what you're supposed to get out of this person and their dread and complications. Um all of that is wrapped up in an album that is like mega power pop. Like it's it's a little synthy. It's like has elements that are just sound like Weezer songs. Like Chris Farron makes like lovely indie rock. Um, he you, you might know him from his collaboration with Jeff Rosenstock in their band Antarctica Vespucci. And like I think everything he writes is just wonderful. And this is like the most focused and concrete any of his albums has been. Uh, I also just love the juxtaposition of depressing concepts with happy songs like uh what what what's that lyric what's that line from loser um self-loathing complaint rock you can dance to <laughs> yeah kind, kind of like that i think that chris farron is a very good recommendation especially for this movie which is dealing with very serious and intense situations but presented in ways that are not letting you in on how severe and intense they are yeah so like it's a little it's it's a little early to say, but we're more than halfway through the year. This might be my favorite album of the year, but I'm not Ooh. putting that in writing yet. So take that for the endorsement that it's worth. <laughs> Alrighty, well, friends, thank you as always for listening, and we will see you next time. And don't forget, save that last dance for us. Okay, bye. Bye. 
to deal. First loves are never really over. Oh boy, do I have the munchies! This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.